We continue with our four-part series looking at 1st and 2nd Samuel. These are the two books that we're hearing from in these three and a half weeks. And so I'm giving a summary over these four days. So two days ago, talked about Samuel, the first of the great figures in these, in these books. And then Saul yesterday and today I'll go into David. And so David, we, we heard yesterday, we finished the story of Saul with Samuel, who was still alive, traveling to Bethlehem to anoint a youth named David as the next king. And of course, that's very familiar to us. We see the, the foreshadowing, we see the type in that right away, that David is a type for Christ, with Samuel traveling to Bethlehem to anoint a youth named David as the next king. And this, is, this first part here is still in 1 Samuel. So as, as Saul is descending, as he's de- declining into decay, David begins to rise. And the first big victory of David, David is when he's still a, an insignificant shepherd boy, and he defeats the great Goliath. And we, we know that story, but here it shows the, immediately the radical and humble trust in God in the God of Israel, and how that's what's important. So David, not strong, not tall, not handsome like Saul was, none of these things, just fully trusting in God, and, and he was still just a little boy. Another thing here is that this isn't a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, and David goes out to meet Goliath, and David is representing all of Israel, and Goliath is representing all the Philistines. In a sense, David is taking upon himself all of the Israelites, all of, we can even say maybe all of the sins of the Israelites. And so that's, that's another type that will be fulfilled in Christ. So then David continues to rise to power, or continues to rise, to literally rise to grow, but then also to rise, rise to power as Saul descends into madness. David begins to work for Saul as a general, and he wins many battles and wins the esteem of many people. And this makes David, or excuse me, makes Saul very jealous. So Saul begins to hunt after David to try to kill him. David runs off into the wilderness to hide, and this will come up again in David, and come up again, of course, in Christ, going into the wilderness. And and David has many opportunities to kill Saul while he's in the wilderness. But here we begin to see David's true character already shining, that he doesn't take these opportunities to kill his leader, to kill his king, and trust that God himself is in control of all these things. With supernatural aid, he narrowly but consistently escapes the bloodthirsty Saul. Saul seeks an answer, not receiving it, seeks the help of a medium. Maybe we can identify with that sometimes when we don't get the answer that we are seeking. We go seeking for answers in unfavorable places. So Saul seeks this answer in a medium. Now Samuel had already died. The great prophet Samuel had already died. Samuel who had been trying to steer Saul in a good direction. But now during, so now during this medium, during this seance, Saul's spirit rises from the dead to give one last prophecy, which is that Saul would die in battle the next day. And sure enough, he dies in a terrible death. So Saul, <clears throat> a great warning. It's crucial to reflect on our character flaws. I talked about this yesterday, to be aware of our dark, dark side, to, to acknowledge our mistakes, to not be too proud, to not recognize our mistakes. And now David is rising in his patience and his, in his trust of God. Now, 
got David's humility and compassion that's present throughout the story. And he laments this, the death of Saul, Saul who had been trying to kill him. He laments this very deeply. And now the people come to David and ask him to unify them. So the people were divided. Again, this is still in the, in, in the unification of, of all the tribes. So the tribes are coming together, the 12 tribes. They now were these two kingdoms, and the southern and the northern. And now they're asking for David to be their second king. Saul, Saul was the first, now David will be the second. And David accepts it. And he sees Jerusalem, which is right on the border between the two kingdoms. He sees that as the perfect place for a political capital. So he goes and conquers it and makes it a political capital. And then he goes on to conquer a few more battles, a few more, more ter- no, more, win a few more battles, and therefore conquer a little bit more territory, expanding the kingdom. And now he moves the ark into Jerusalem. So not only is Jerusalem the political capital, but now also the religious capital. And this was what is this plan? He's a man after God's own heart. We heard this yesterday. This is key for David. He's a man after God's own heart. And so now he moves the, the ark, which we just heard. I talked about this the first day, how the the Philistine or excuse me, the Israelites had brought out the Ark of the Covenant under the leadership of Saul in in this as a great kind of tro- not Saul yet, excuse me, but before Saul. But anyways, had brought out this the Ark of the Covenant as a great trophy, as a magical trophy saying, hey, we have the Ark of the Covenant, so you guys should go ahead and surrender. Well, that didn't work. The Philistines conquered the Ark. Well, now David, David doesn't have this mentality. He's not trying to use God in order to win battles. He's after God's own heart. He's trying to do everything to please God. So now he goes and moves the Ark into Jerusalem. And this sets up for a key chapter to understand the entire biblical story, the entire Judeo-Christian story. Which is this, when God, when, when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, he now asks God, not in these exact words, but he basically asks God, can I build you a, a house? Can I, can I, David, build you a house? And he's, he kind of laments the fact that he's living in a very fancy palace as king, and the Ark is in, is in a tent. Can I build you a house, God? And God responds, it's a surprising response perhaps, but God responds, should you build me a house to dwell in? It was I who took you from the pasture and from the care of the flock to be a commander of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you, and I will make you famous like the great ones of the earth. I will fix a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their place without further disturbance. Neither shall the wicked continue to afflict them as they did of old. Since the time I first appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also reveals to you that he will establish a house for you. And when your time comes and you, because of course God is saying this through a prophet, in any case, the Lord also reveals to you, and when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise you up. I will raise up your heir after you, sprung from your loins, and I will make his kingdom firm. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall stand firm forever. So, of course, this is a promise of the future king of Jesus, who is going to come from the loins of David as a descendant of David. And this is going to be the fulfillment of everything, going all the way back to Abraham. But... 
Notice here that David was wanting to build a house for God. And God basically says, no, no, I will build you a house. And we we had seen this in Job before when Job, after having lost everything, came crying to God and saying, you know, how come you you took all of this from me? God unspooled this long speech, the longest speech in the Bible, saying, I have given you everything. And so you have to continue to trust in me. Now here again, David now is wanting to do something for God. This is really key. God, David is wanting to do something for God. And God says, I will do something for you. I will build a kingdom for you. I will give you your house. And there's a wordplay here with, in the Hebrew between house and dynasty. The, word, the same word house can be translated both as temple or dynasty. David says, I'll, bring, I'll build you a temple. And God says, no, no, I will build you a dynasty. And God is going to do this. And this is, can be misunderstood as, you know, when we try to apply this to our lives in the sense of like, I want to do something for God. Like I want to do, I don't know, let's just say ministry A. And then God shuts that door. And then I'm like, oh yeah, no, he wants me to do ministry B. No, that's not quite it either. That's still just me trying to build a house for God. Just now I'm trying to build a different house. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, I, God, will build you a house. And I, at this point can't be stressed enough. And, and I think once we see this, everything shifts. It's like, it's not, just, it's not me doing something for God. It's God doing something for me. And what is he doing for me? He's building me a dynasty in me. I mean, this will, this will unspool a little bit more here shortly, but in me, which is Jesus. Jesus in me is the kingdom, is the dynasty that God wants to give me, and of course, each and every one of us. Okay, so now, gosh, 10 minutes. Okay, I'll, I'll just fast forward. I know folks have to work and things, but... We, we go into the story, of, immediately we go into the story of Bathsheba. So again, the great, the great drama of human sinfulness, of the brokenness of the human heart, that right after receiving these tremendous promises, we, we could then get the, the, the story of David's downfall, <clears throat> David's sin with Bathsheba. And I'll just have to skip over that, and I'll spend a lot of time there, but basically what happens the key of that story, in contrast with Saul, that we just heard, had just heard, is that when Saul sinned and he was confronted, Saul had all sorts of excuses. Oh, but these were the circumstances and these are my justifications and this is why I did what I did. Because this is what I thought, I, Saul, thought this would be the best thing to do in order to win this battle. David doesn't do that. When he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, David immediately repents. He says, I have sinned. I am sorry. Once he recognizes. And of course, this is what Psalm 51 is. Have mercy on me, O God, according to my steadfast love, according to thy abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, etc., etc. This great cry of, of repentance from David. So Psalm 51 is a great one to, to pray really every day. You're constantly asking God for forgiveness for our sins. But this is one of the great differences between Saul and David, the contrast that these books are setting up for us. God does forgive David's sins, but the consequences of the sins still happen, which is the downfall of his family, 
His, his son Amnon commits incest with his daughter Tamar. Then Absalom murders Amnon and then tries to murder David. David runs into the wilderness again. Here's that second run into the wilderness. But now he's cunning and wise and he had set up his army to take down Absalom, but with explicit order not to kill him. And they do, and they kill Absalom anyways. And David mourns the son, the, the loss, of his, the death of his own son. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would God I had died for thee. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So we see here David's heart throughout, throughout this whole story. His son had tried to kill him, and he, he saved his life, tried not to have his son killed, he died anyways, and he wishes he would have died in his son's place. So this is the key, and to be after God's heart, not to try to build a kingdom here, not even to try to build a, God, a house for God, to allow God to build his temple in us, which is Jesus Christ. <laughs>